This is our gospel reading. After this, Jesus traveled about from one town and village to another, proclaiming the good news of the kingdom of God. The twelve were with him, and also some women who had been cured of evil spirits and diseases. Mary called Mary Magdalene, from, wh- from whom seven demons had come out. Joanna, the wife of Shusa, the manager of Herod's household. Susanna and many others. These women were helping to support them out of their own means. While a large crowd was gathering and people were coming to Jesus from town after town, he told this parable. A farmer went out to sow his seed. As he was scattering the seed, some fell along the path. It was trampled upon and the birds ate it up. Some fell on rocky ground and when it came up, the plants withered because they had no moisture. Other seed fell among the thorns, which grew up with it and choked the plants. Still other seed fell on good soil. It came up and yielded a crop a hundred times more than was sown. When he said this, he called out, whoever has ears to hear, let them hear. His disciples asked him what this parable meant. He said, the knowledge of the secrets of the kingdom of God has been given to you, but to others I speak in parables so that though seeing, they may not see, though hearing, they may not understand. This is the meaning of the parable. The seed is the word of God. Those along the path are the ones who hear, and then the devil comes and takes away the word from their hearts so that they may not believe and be saved. Those on the rocky ground are the ones who receive the word with joy when they hear it, but they have no root. They believe for a while, but in the time of testing, they fall away. The seed that fell among the thorns stands for those who hear, but as they go on their way, what they are choked by, they are choked by life's worries, riches, and pleasures, and they do not mature. But the seed on the good soil stands for those with a noble and good heart who hear the word retain it, and by persevering, produce a crop. This is the gospel of Jesus Christ. Let's pray together. Father, it's easy to recognize our hearts in this parable. We see ourselves in each of these different ways. And some of us, our hearts have grown very hard and cold. We are like the paths. There is no growth. The busyness keeps going right over the top of us. We don't let your seed take root. Others, we see uh, that our hearts are rocky. They are very spiky and sharp, and the seed cannot take root as it should. Others of us knew a time where we felt very close to you, very deeply in relationship with you, and yet trouble, toil, trial has caused our love of you to dim very severely. And others here, because of your grace, have a tender heart, a soft heart. Father, as we're honest, we see these different characteristics or characterizations of human hearts at play in our lives daily. We see these four different things at play in our lives in one particular day. Father, I pray that you would help us as we see that we are hard-hearted, as we see rocky-hearted, as we see that we had initial joy and enthusiasm, but weeds are now choking out our joy, would you soften? Would you tenderize? Would you give us a heart that is open to you and to your work? 
I pray as I preach that you would make my heart open. Would you use these words? Would you use your word to penetrate us and give us soft and open hearts? We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. We're going to look at three things briefly. The seed of the kingdom, the soil of the kingdom, and then the so what of the kingdom. Seed and soil, and then so what? What does it matter that we know these things, that we understand the seed of the kingdom and how it works in particular soils? So what? What does it matter for us as we walk out of here? A study was done in the late 90s about how people don't recognize things that are very obvious, things that are right in front of their eyes. And they did one video experiment, which you can go on YouTube and look at. But it runs for a few minutes, and there's six people in the room passing a basketball back and forth. And the viewer is supposed to count the number of times that that basketball changes hands. And so it begins, and it's pretty quick, and you've got to pay attention. And about a minute into it, as you're really focusing, a guy in a gorilla suit walks into the frame and beats his chest and then walks out. Only 50% of the people that watched that video noticed the gorilla. 50%. There's often something right in front of us, something very obvious, and yet we don't recognize it. We don't understand its full import. We don't assimilate it into our lives. And this is very much like Jesus' parables and Jesus' message of the kingdom. He quotes Isaiah to explain that there are some who see but are actually blind. There are some who hear but are actually deaf. And even his disciples, those with whom Jesus is right in front, those to whom the kingdom should be most obvious and Jesus' method of mission most apparent, they don't get it. They hear this parable, which we think at first glance, well, isn't that obvious? And they say, Jesus, explain it to us. Jesus' work, his kingdom message, the way that the gospel spreads on the earth is often cryptic. It's often imperceptible, it's often slow, and it's often very, very mysterious. Even though it's clearly explained over and over by Jesus, even his closest friends don't get it. It's only given, it's only truly seen, it's only truly heard with the eyes and the ears of faith. Now let's talk about this seed, the seed of the kingdom. This is the first of three parables in Luke that would be considered parables of the kingdom. Matthew gives six, Luke gives three. And the kingdom, in its most basic definition, the most simplest form would be the reign and the rule of God. That's what the gospel writers are talking about when they say kingdom. It's the rule and reign of God. And in one sense, the rule and reign of God is everywhere. It's established. It's final, it's consummated. David prays way back in the Old Testament, yours, Lord, is the greatest and the power and the glory and the majesty and the splendor for everything in heaven and on earth is yours. Yours, Lord, is the kingdom. You are exalted as head over all. In one sense, God is reigning and ruling fully. He owns everything. He created everything. He upholds everything, present tense. But in another sense, and in the sense that Jesus often talks about, it's not fully experienced. And that's why we, each and every week, we pray in the Lord's Prayer, Lord, your kingdom come. 
your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. That there is some asymmetry between the way that God is ruling and reigning on, in heaven and the way that he is ruling and reigning and the way that we experience it here on earth. And as we pray the Lord's Prayer, we're praying, Lord, make true what is true in heaven, true on earth, true in our experience. Would your reign and rule finally and fully come to be experienced here on earth? And that dichotomy, that asymmetry is what baffles us. It's what befuddles us. It's what befuddled Jesus' followers. Because on one sense, God is reigning. And why do we not experience it? Why is my life still spiraling out of control? Why do I pick up the newspaper, the internet, and see what is going wrong, the bloodshed and the sadness that people experience day in and day out. Jesus, you came to say that you, you, you've come to save the world, and yet there's so much left unsaved and unfixed. Now, what we do see as Jesus talks about the kingdom is that we see Jesus did not come simply to bring forgiveness of sin for you personally. He didn't come simply to grant you personal entrance into the presence of God, but he says over and over, I have come to bring the kingdom of God. When Jesus preaches about the kingdom, he is indicating, he is preaching, he is telling us how the power of God enters into the world through his work and that he is at work healing everything. He is healing alienation, social, economic, psychological, and yes, spiritual. But this kingdom, the way he seeks to do that, the way he heals alienation, the way he saves the world is very different than what we expect. And it's very different than the way that the kingdoms of the world operate. Earthly kingdoms you see come in by force. They come in by coercion. They come in by going up. Jesus' kingdom comes in by hearing, by listening, by the word of God, and by going down. When Alexander the Great or Genghis Khan or Julius Caesar came into town, everyone knew it because they made a lot of noise, they broke stuff, and they killed people. Everyone knew that their kingdom had come to town. It was very obvious because they came with a sword rather than a seed. They came with the power of the sword rather than the subtlety of a seed. And you were either in their kingdom or you were dead. Overwhelming force, coercion, straight line power. This is how the kingdoms of the world work. It's a sword rather than a seed. A sword comes suddenly. A sword comes often by surprise. A seed comes organically and it comes gradually. A sword destroys, but a seed transforms. A sword makes things ugly, but a seed makes things beautiful. What do we want from Jesus' kingdom? And what did his original hearers want? They wanted a sword. They wanted the Romans, those dirty pagans that are occupying Palestine, they wanted them thrown out an end to Israel's exile physically and politically and right now. A king who is tortured and killed will change the world. A kingdom where you find your life by giving it up. A kingdom where up is down. A kingdom where you maintain your wealth by giving it away where the first is last. 
How could this possibly answer the hopes of the Old Testament Messiah? How could this possibly bring in a kingdom of peace? This would have been seen in that day, just as it is today, as ludicrous. And therefore, it's very easy to miss what Jesus is doing. The work that God is actually doing, we must pay attention. We must look closely. We must learn to listen. We must learn to see. In fact, we must be given eyes and given ears that are attuned to what God is doing. The secret of the kingdom is the seed. It's the word which is sown. It is the gospel message that moves forward, not on the basis of power and sword, but on the basis of individual hearts, individual communities being transformed by the power of the gospel message organically, sometimes slowly, oftentimes gradually, but always totally, ultimately, and eventually. What the Bible says What Jesus says is that the kingdom of God has broken in. It has entered into the world through him and that he is at work healing things in substantial but a still often partial way because he has not fully consummated and returned and finally set up his kingdom. When a baby is born, the first two to three years of life are full of profound change. You who are parents have seen it in your own children. Almost every day you see something new, especially as they enter into year two and three. You see them becoming aware of their world in new ways almost every day. They learn to walk. They learn new words. They learn new concepts. It is a world of fantastic, profound, substantial change. Three years of change. Four years of change. But no one would say at that moment that they're mature. And from the perspective of the rest of the 70 years that they may live, 80 years even, that change that takes place in those two to three years will pale in, in comparison to what will eventually be. And the same thing is true if you're a Christian this morning. You probably had some type of conversion experience and you notice very quickly that God was beginning to retrain the way that you think. You began to walk and talk differently. You learned new words. You learned to crawl. You learned very quickly, and God was beginning to change you in most of the time, fairly substantial ways in the first days and years that you were a Christian. And then at some point, you kind of notice, wow, I've slowed down. But still, when you look at the long term, no one would say that at that moment, the first year that you're a Christian, that you're mature. Great change, profound change, but yet still in comparison to what will eventually happen is pales in comparison, is small. And this is the way that Jesus is saying that his kingdom comes. The coming of Jesus brings profound change into the world instantaneously. His death swallows up the power of sin. His resurrection swallows up the power of death itself. It's powerful. It's challenging. It's profound. And if you were standing there in those 30 or 33 years, you would say, this is profound. This is stunning. And yet so much else needs to take place. His victory, the reign and the rule of God spreads organically out from that moment forward. And what he says is that one day this seed, which you see populating this little corner of the field, will one day populate and change the entire field. 
the seed will grow organically. And what, what you see, what will be what is promised, and what you will see then is so much more profound and so much more full. We want Jesus to come into the mess of our lives like Genghis Khan and start swinging a sword and taking care of all the baddies in our lives, taking care of all the problems in our lives. We want Alexander the Great to come into the world and bring a sword, bring power, bring coercion, and change things immediately. And we easily grow frustrated as Christians, as followers of Christ. We easily grow frustrated when that's not the way that God works. Sometimes he does. Sometimes it's instantaneous. Sometimes it's very gradual and therefore painful, and it takes patience. It takes eyes to see and ears to hear, to remember the promises that it is one day he brings a seed, not a sword. Both change the field. Both change the environment, but in different ways. The seed of Jesus' kingdom is sometimes slow, sometimes imperceptible, but will one day be total. And that's what we look forward to. That's the seed. That's how the seed changes. That's how the seed of the kingdom works. But what about the soil? What type of soil does it take for that seed to take root? Now, this parable has been traditionally called the parable of the sower, but it's not really about the sower at all. It's about the seeds. It's about what kind of soil does the kingdom of God take root in? What kind of person, what type of heart does it take to respond to this message? What type of heart, what type of life responds to the message of the kingdom of God over the long haul rather than just in the moment? Now, it says there are large crowds following him and people coming to Jesus from town after town. But he's telling them a very pessimistic, it seems, parable. It's not very good PR. He's saying, all of these crowds that are following me, you who are coming to me from town after town, most of you don't really get it. Most of you will turn away. Most of you don't understand the kingdom. There's only a few that do. Seth Godin is a a writer and a marketer and and kind of an idea maker. And he says that the easiest customers to get are almost never the best ones. If you're considering word of mouth, stability, and lifetime value, it's almost always true that the easier it is to get someone's attention, the less it's worth. Jesus is saying, I've got your attention. You're following me. You're showing up here on a Sunday morning, but do you really get it? It's easy to get you enthusiastic. It's easy to draw a crowd, but do you really get me? Do you really want me and my message, or do you want this initial enthusiasm? Do you want me to just come in and swoop in and fix all your problems? Now, he tells us about four different types of soil. And he's not giving us here a very neat set of buckets in which we can kind of categorize human sin and human hearts. There is some overlap. They're not neat and tidy. But he gives us four characterizations of the way that human hearts are aligned and orientated to his message. He says there are seeds along the path, the rock, the thorns, and then the good soil, soil, which is basically hard hearts, shallow hearts, divided hearts, and open hearts. Now, again, 
Not a perfect, clear taxonomy of everything, every type of sin, but let's look at them and see if we can pull out some relevancy to how our hearts often respond to the gospel. First of all, the hard hearts, the seeds that fell along the path. Now, in Palestine, as you can imagine, in those days, paths were where there was no vegetation. It's where people walked, and they were very hard-packed because animals and foot traffic over years pressed them down. And you couldn't imagine anything growing there because not only there was so much foot traffic, but the soil itself was so hard and improper for things to take root. There's no way that if you scatter seed on a path that it's going to immediately take root. Now, what else do paths do? Paths get people moving. Paths move people from one place to another. They lead from one engagement of life to another. People on paths are determined to get somewhere, to the next town or to the next event, to the next person, to the next meeting. And some of us here this morning, our hearts are more like a busy street than they are good soil. Our hearts are like streets or paths where people go passing by on their way to something more important. Some among you may have paused. You may be here this morning. You've kind of got your ear open. You're listening in. You've peeked in. Maybe you're here regularly, but yet your life is so full of busyness and getting to the next event that you can't pause long enough to really give full consideration of exactly what Jesus is saying, you can't stop life as you know it in order to see how Jesus would convey life as he knows it and wants it. People who are always on the go are most in danger of this, in danger of missing what Jesus is seeking to do with their lives. Helmut Tielecki, isn't that a great name? Wouldn't you like to grow up with the name Helmut? Sounds rather tough probably my favorite commentator on the parables. His little book called The Waiting Father is just full of solid gold stuff. So don't go buy it because then everything I tell you might seem a little boring. You read it for yourself. But he says, a person who can no longer be receptive soil for at least 15 minutes each day, who never allows himself to be plowed and opened up and never waits for what God drops into his furrow, that person has already lost the game at a crucial point. You see, friends, it's possible to be in contact with the truth, but you're seeking to ascertain what Jesus has to offer you, what value it will bring to your present life unchanged, what it can do for you. That's the hard heart. That's the path path heart. So you stand apart from it. You critique it. You challenge it. You keep it at a distance. It doesn't go under the soil and germinate and take root. The person with the hard heart, with the path heart, never gets to the point where they say, this is talking about me. This is coming right at me and challenging me in the very center of who I am. And so I have to stop. I have to pay attention and listen and hear. It's not adding something to what I already have, but transforming me from the inside out. That's what you had to do with a path in order to grow something there. You had to wall it off from the busyness and the foot traffic, and then you had to plow it. You had to turn it up. You had to make it soft. You had to put water on it. That's what a path heart needs. It has to be plowed. 
It has to be made open. You have to pause long enough to where the word can come in underneath and germinate and change you from the inside out. You see, we can have great respect for Jesus, but if there's too much motion, if there's not enough stopping, if there's too much of you in the equation, you're the hard-packed path. And Jesus' message will just continue to bounce off of you. You may be interested in it, but you will never ascertain what it really means. That's the path heart, the hard heart. What about the shallow hearts? These are the seeds that fall on rocky soil where there's an initial joy, an initial exuberance, an initial excitement, but the heat of the sun, the trials, the difficulty of life comes, and you don't have the root system to survive. Right now, I'm relearning guitar. And so our kids are taking piano, and this same person comes over and teaches me guitar every Sunday night. And so it's a great kind of accountability built in because I know he's coming, and so I have to practice. But I'm having to relearn guitar because 15 years ago, I began to play and then put it on the shelf. I was initially very happy and joyful and exuberant, and then I hit that point With any good thing, you hit that point where you have to challenge yourself. You have to push through that barrier, whether it's education, whether it's a relationship, whether it's um, athletics, whatever it is. There's this initial joy, this initial draw, this initial attraction, but then you hit the hard work. Then you hit the discipline. And you either say, well, okay, I'm going to push through this because I know what's coming later is much more valuable and much more deeply joyful than what this initial joy I have. In a relationship, you push through the hard knocks, the challenges, the hurdles, because you know that a deep relationship, you know that a marriage is much more gratifying than just the initial stages of that relationship. You're willing to do the hard work to push through it. And this moment reveals your real commitment. It reveals whether you are into it for the initial joy or the ultimate joy. And it also reveals not only your level of commitment, but the reason that you came into it in the first place. Whether you push through some of the challenges in the Christian life reveals why you came into the Christian story to begin with. Did you come to Jesus to give your life away? Did you come to Jesus to join him in mission, to be charitable to other people, to give up everything no matter what? Is that why you came to Jesus? Or did you come just for an enlightening spiritual experience? Or did you come just so that he could fix something in your life? When we we see whether we're listening with a shallow heart when we encounter the costs of the kingdom, when we encounter the demands of the kingdom, when we encounter some part of life that's not working as we want it to, that's when we understand how committed we are. That's when we, what, when it gets revealed why we came into Christianity to begin with. We understand then if we walk away, if we lose interest, if we detach, that we didn't enter Jesus's kingdom, but we're trying to get Jesus to enter our kingdom. He was a service provider and not a king. We were a sufferer in need of a solution rather than a sinner in need of salvation. Very different things. You can be sitting here this morning as G- with Jesus as a service provider. And this worship service provides religious goods and services to you. 
or you can be here because you want to worship, because you want to give your life away, because you want to join what Jesus is doing through this church outside of it. You don't come just to get a an injection. You come to be changed. You come to be challenged. You come to join Jesus in what he is doing. Initial enthusiasm, initial excitement can often be a straw fire that just destroys it. It's a fleeting joy. We need to ask ourselves, do we have a shallow heart or do we have an open heart, a deep heart? So the path heart the hard heart, the shallow heart is the rocky heart. Then we see the divided heart. And this is the heart that worships and receives, but it's choked by weeds. Weeds. We say, I believe God has authority over my life, except when it comes to these areas. I believe that God, that Jesus is my new king in all of my life, except this, except this area, except my comfort, except my standard of living except my privacy, except my bitterness. I cannot give up on my bitterness. Jesus is my king and he's king over all my life, but I'm going to hold on to this until the day I die. You can have everything but. That's the divided heart. We're in no man's land because we're not giving up on the faith. We're not chucking the faith. We're not saying I disbelieve. We're just not moving forward. We're not taking steps forward. And friends, the sad thing is that this, it's this third group that's the most miserable soil. The first one just rejects it out of hand. The second one gives it up for greener pastures, for the hopes of something better and bigger, for greater loves. But the third is the most difficult and the most painful and the most frustrating because you're coming apart from the inside out. There, the other two types who don't really get the message but this person has some kind of root system. Instead of falling away, they're falling apart, and it's the most painful, the most frustrating of all of the soil experiences. Then finally, the fourth one, and we won't dwell too long on this, but it's the open heart. These are the people who really hear, who really see, who really open themselves up, and it's not because they're more smart, smarter, it's not because they're brilliant. It's not because they've necessarily read more. It's because they open themselves up to the seed. They open themselves up. No matter what they find, they open themselves up to the Word of God and say, critique me, challenge me, change me. I don't want to be the same person I am today, tomorrow, and the year from now, and 10 years from now. Change me, Jesus. That's the open heart. They listen well, but they know that true, uh, true understanding is not simply grasping the meaning of the text. The other two soils, the other three soils do that. They understand what the text means, but it doesn't change them. This person, the open heart, says, God, plant the seed in my heart. Conform me to your kingdom no matter what the cost. Throughout Psalm 119, you hear this constant refrain. The psalmist is begging God, give me understanding. Help me to see. Give me eyes. Give me ears. In other words, the good soil is good not because of their nature. They're not good by nature. They're good by grace. They're good because God has uprooted their self-dependence, their self-importance, their pride, and has begun to plant his seed 
in their lives. And this person says, whatever, whenever, wherever. If you consider yourself a Christian this morning, have you said that? Have you said to God, and maybe even to other people, I'm a Christian, and therefore, whatever God calls me to do, whenever and wherever, I will do it. It's the scariest thing you can say if you say it honestly, but it's also the road, the door to true joy and true fulfillment. We saw the seed. We looked at four soils. Now, briefly, so what? Why does it matter? So what? I read you the Helmut Tielecki quote, a person who can no longer be receptive soil for at least 15 minutes each day, who never allows himself to be plowed and open up, opened up and never waits for what God drops into his furrow, that person has already lost the game in a crucial point. But having said that, don't you hate it when people say that? Tell you something very simple, very straightforward. Now I'm going to confuse it and muddle it and all of that. Having said that, you have to be careful coming to the Word of God. The Bible talks about itself as a sword, a double-edged sword that's powerful, that's living and active. In fact, it says it never returns void, that the Word of God never goes out and returns void, but that does not mean that it always bears fruit of belief. It can also harden hearts if you are one of those three soils. You can hear the Word of God, and it can make you cold and hard-hearted and distant and mean. And some of the meanest, coldest, hardest people I know know more about the Bible than I could ever hope to know. They're the path. Their hearts are cold, and they use the Bible to get leverage over God and get leverage over other people. It puffs them up. It grows this huge head that makes them mean and makes them callous. Telechi goes on to say, a salty pagan full of the juices of life, is a hundred times dearer to God and also far more attractive to men than a scribe who knows his Bible, in whom none of this results in repentance and action and, above all, death to the self. A terrible curse hangs over the know-it-all who does nothing and also over the theologian who is only a theologian. Do you see what he's saying? The Word of God is powerful. It is active. It is living. It never returns void. In the good soil, it will bear fruit. It will always bear fruit. Sometimes slowly, gradually, but always inevitably. To the hard heart, to the shallow heart, to the divided heart, it has a very different response entirely. To the hard heart that just takes in information and uses it as leverage over other people, who builds their system of doctrine only to enforce what they already believe, those people grow hard and cold and mean. Everyone, he says, has a hidden axis around which his life revolves. Every man has a price for which he is prepared or almost prepared to sell himself and his salvation. Where is this axis in my life and what is this awful price for my heart? Where is this axis in my heart? And what is the awful price that I'm willing to pay to give up joy, to give up everything, to give up the kingdom of Jesus in order to maintain my own kingdom? 
And when we're asking this, what we see when you frame it that way is we're not simply asking, where is the axis in my life? We're asking, what are the roots of restlessness and joylessness and mean-spiritedness and bitterness in my own life? When you allow the Word to critique you, to open, to open up your heart and to pull out all of your own little petty kingdoms and to challenge them and to destroy them, it is painful and sometimes ugly, but it is the road to rest. It's the road to peace. We have to ask, where is this axis? Where is this alternative kingdom? Where is this root of restlessness in my own life? What keeps me unendlessly striving? What keeps me busy? What keeps me unable to rest, always on the path to something else that I never truly encounter the kingdom? What lesser joy am I clinging to that prevents deep and lasting joy? What root is making me shallow and fickle? What non-negotiable, what ultimate thing in my life is pulling my life and my heart apart? Why am I divided? What kingdoms are battling within my heart and for my soul? What price will I sell my soul for? You see, friends, the decision that we're faced with this morning is not simply whether we'll have Jesus as king or no king. None of us are faced with that question this morning. It's not Jesus is king or no king. You already have a king or many kings in your life. You already have something or someone that is ruling your heart, and it wants all of you. It wants to take everything of you, and Jesus wants the very same thing. He wants a total control. He wants to be your king and Lord and master, but it's not a gateway into this totalitarian, burdensome, awful experience that we see as kingly, powerful rules in our day. It's something very different. Jesus says that the kingdom of God is at hand. I have come and I've brought my kingdom, and so therefore what? Repent. Repent of all of the kingdoms that you serve now, especially the one that has you on the seat of the throne. Repent and turn and receive me as king and master. Put me on the throne. That's the first thing that he says. My kingdom is at hand, so repent. But also what? Believe the gospel. Repent in order to believe the good news. It's total. It's all or nothing. But it's good, comforting, lovely, life-giving news. The choice is not Jesus is king or no king. It's do you want to serve a terrible, totalitarian, oppressive king, or do you want to serve a life-giving, loving, gracious king? That's what we're faced with. That's the decision this morning. At the center of the kingdom is not a bomb that blows things up, is explosive and obvious, and it changes everything, even at an elemental level. It's not a bomb, but it's a seed. It changes things organically, but totally. At the center of the kingdom is not a sword that comes and slices you up and makes you ugly. It's a cross in which Jesus makes himself ugly so that you can be beautiful, so that you can be radically saved, so that you can have life to the fullest. The center of the kingdom is not a sword 
but it's a cross. And Jesus says, I will go to it for you. Now repent and believe the good news. That's what this parable is all about. Let's pray. Father, we pray that we would truly sit beneath your word, that we don't stand beside your word or on top of your word, but we sit underneath it humbly. And Father, that is a scary, scary proposition. And yet you tell us that it is full of promise, that it is full of hope, that as we do that, that you give us life, you give us comfort, you give us everything that we want when we're looking to all of those other minor, lesser kingdoms to give us. Father, we pray that you would give us the world, not so that we can be happy, so that we can be fulfilled, but so that we can fulfill your mission, so that we can participate in the life that you hold out for, you, for us and your church. Lord, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.